If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 1 through 11. This is our Joy to the World teaching series. Joy in conflict is the topic of this weekend's message. When Jesus came to this earth, it was good news of great joy. It tells us it's part of the Christmas story, second chapter of Luke. And uh, good news of great joy. The Apostle Paul teaches us how we can have this good news of great joy in every area of our life, regardless of the people, things, and circumstances of our life. So as we're working through the book, the small letter to the church in Philippi, written, penned by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's teaching us how we can have this joy in every circumstance. The key verse is Philippians 4.4. Let's say it together. You guys remember? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. There you go. There's your memory verse for the week. Let's do it again. You guys ready? Nice and loud. It's an easy verse, but it's, it, it's really the theme verse of this whole letter. One, two, three. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Okay, I think you can actually do maybe just a little bit better than that. So I'm going to kind of get you to, to sit up straight and nice and loud like you mean it. One, two, three. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Now once again, I need to define for you, really our working definition for this joy is that it is a deep, durable delight in the beauty, glory, splendor of who Jesus is and what He's done that ruins us for anything else. That's one of our working definitions. The other definition is that it is a buoyancy. Yes, life can push you down, but it doesn't keep you down because we have this buoyancy. This buoyancy is based on the pleasures we find in the eternal privileges we have through Jesus Christ. The most important eternal privilege is the very presence of God in our lives. He told us He would never, ever, ever leave us or forsake us. And so that gives us this, this endurance. What is the opposite of joy? It's not sorrow. We have sorrow in this world. But the opposite would be hopelessness and despair. The counterfeit of joy would be to find our joy or our elation in the gifts rather than the gift giver. And so we focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our joy is here this morning. And so we're talking about joy and conflict. Oh boy, sounds like fun. I'm just curious, how many, uh, maybe you don't want to admit this, especially if you've got relatives that are sitting next to you. I was going to ask how many have conflict around this time of the year when you have relatives come into town. And so if you're sitting next to relatives, just to ignore the fact that I'm asking that question. How many have a little bit of conflict with, with relatives, with, with family during this time of the year? Okay. And hopefully you're not sitting next to them and pointing them out right now. Just, But uh, yeah, this can be particularly very stressful time of the year for a lot of different reasons. But one would be just the fact that we have to interact with those that ah, we don't get along with too well. well we're going to look at really what is the root cause of that. In fact, you'll notice on your notes the extent to which two people in a relationship can bring up and resolve issues is a critical marker of the soundness of that relationship. Would you agree with that? Would you agree with that? Okay, yeah, so the, most of us would agree with that. I think that's really important. So if I can bring up things to you, you can bring up things to me, and we can work through those things, then the relationship is pretty healthy. If I can be open and honest, we can speak the truth in love, that would be the marks of a really healthy relationship. 
The next point on your notes, conflict gives opportunity for greater levels of maturity and intimacy. Don't run from conflict. Conflict can be really a good thing. It can be a positive thing in our relationships. It gives greater levels of of maturity and intimacy in the relationship. Yes, I understand that sometimes you do need to separate yourself from some people. Some people are abusive. Some people are inappropriate in their relationships. Some people want to control us and manipulate us. And so sometimes we need to withdraw or we need to have good healthy boundaries. We need to know how to establish that. And so, but we need to take care of our side of the street. Relationships are two-way streets, so we take care of our side of the street. And we challenge the other one to take care of their side of the street too. We don't enable them if they're dysfunctional in that, but it can give greater opportunity for greater levels of maturity and intimacy. But here's the thing about relationships. Relationships do not put us in conflict with others as much as it puts us in conflict with our own sinful nature, our pride. It gives rise to our own issues that we can deal with. And this is what you're going to find out, is that the reason why I have conflict this way with, with people in my life socially is probably because I have conflict internally. To the degree I have conflict internally, I have this psychological alienation happening is to the degree that I'm going to have a a social alienation happen in my life. And the reason why I have this psychological alienation is because there's some kind of a disconnect between me and God. And to the degree that I begin to experience peace with God, which gives me the peace of God, then I'll begin to offer peace in these relationships. It tells us in the 12th chapter of Romans, as far as it concerns you, be at peace with all people, with all men. And so to that degree, I can only do that to the degree that I I understand where I am in Jesus Christ. That's kind of the basis of what we're looking at here this morning. Really an important text found in the book of Philippians, but not just in the book of Philippians, but through the whole scripture. Very powerful, significant text that we're looking at here this morning. But before we read it, just take a moment. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's open our hearts once again to God. Allow him to speak to us through his holy word. God, we are delighted to be here today. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. God, we know that we are justified by faith, and because we are justified by faith, our faith in, in the personal work of Jesus Christ, we have peace with you through Jesus Christ, his sacrificial blood shed on Calvary for each one of us. And because of that, we have a, a peace, a, a completeness, a contentment in our hearts, in our souls, in our spirits. And we have the peace of God that rules our hearts and minds so that we can then in turn offer that peace to others, that we can be ministers of reconciliation. And as your word says, as far as it concerns you, be at peace with everyone, Lord. Let that be our hearts, our lives. May we put on display the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives. Help us to understand the cause of our conflict and the cure of our conflict this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said... Amen. Take a look at uh, this text. I'm going to read completely through the text and then we'll go through and dissect it. Philippians 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to look at the cause of our conflict, the cure to our conflict, and then what will bring about the change that we so desperately need in our lives, and then how we can maintain that, that change in our lives, how we can maintain it, keep it consistent in our lives so that we can have the harmony that we so desperately long for in our lives. Your first fill in the blank there is pride. The cause of our conflict is pride. And you'll notice that I've given you a lot of cross-references. I'm not going to spend a lot of time this morning working through a number of those. Sometimes I just allude to them or talk about them very briefly, but I'll let you look those up on your own as you work through the growing notes. As we go back to verses 2 through 3, in this text, Paul is describing a unified human community, harmony, unity, something that we all long for. We all desire to have harmony, unity, community in the church, in our home, at work, in every dimension of our lives. But there's something inside of us that undermines that, the very thing that we so long for, that we desire. The problem is that there is something wrong with the heart that undermines unity. Look at verse 3. If you have your Bible still open, keep them open there in front of you. In verse 3, he says, Do nothing from... He uses two words there. What's the first one? Rivalry or conceit. The word rivalry, in fact, if you have your Bibles open, you can circle that word if you, if you write in your Bible as I do. Circle it and you can put off to the side. It just means to promote yourself. It's self-promotion. The word rivalry, literally in the Greek, it's a desire to put oneself forward. So I want to promote myself. That's what rivalry means. And then the next word is conceit. The Greek there is vain glory or empty glory. It's an interesting word. It means to be hungry hungry for respect or glory or honor, or you're glory hungry. So the, the word is vain glory. The word vain means empty, and the word glory would mean weight, significance, importance. So you're empty of weight, significance, and importance. So you can see how these two words tie together. We desire to put ourselves forward because we are empty of glory. We are empty of this sense of meaning, purpose, significance, security. We desire to put ourselves forward because we are empty of glory. In fact, this is the, the fallen condition of the human heart. And you can see this uh, being glory hungry, why that would lead to conflict. I promote myself because I am empty of glory, of, of significance and security. So I promote myself automatically if someone else is doing that within that relationship, there's going to be automatic conflict there. You can see this in street gangs. 
Street gangs are filled with young men who don't feel valued by society or even by their family, and therefore you walk down the street and slight them a little, they'll pull a gun on you because they are vain glory, empty of glory. Nancy and I were in Tucson not too long ago, and uh, we were helping our daughter move, and we were heading down a road, realized that we went past the turnoff, and so we did a U-turn. I was waiting, and I got the arrow, did the U-turn. As I was making the U-turn, a guy uh, in a lowrider Cadillac, gangbanger type guy, pulled out in front of me in the, in the road perpendicular to where we were going. He pulled right out in front of me, not seeing me initially, and he stopped right there. We couldn't go anywhere. We just sat there, and he, he looked at us like, gave me one of those attitudes, flipped me off, gave me a little attitude. I flipped him off back. No, I didn't do that. Uh, there was a time, I would have never flipped anybody off, but I would have, uh, I would have messed with them. But with my lovely wife there who always says, don't look at him, don't look at him, don't look at him. It's like, okay. And I've, there's, that's happened a few times out there. And she's like, ah. And it was, it was a pretty threatening kind of situation. I'm, I'm stuck in the middle of the road. And I was like, dude, mash the gas, okay? Get with it, dude. And he just kind of looked at me like he was, like was going to take me on. And finally he went, and then he wanted to play games with us down the road as we're going up. So I pulled my revolver out from underneath my seat in my car, <laughs> shot a couple. No, I didn't do that. I'll tell you what, it, it's a time when you start thinking, man, it would be good to have maybe a, a gun. Because the, the way this guy was, you know, he, he basically was threatening us and threatening, uh, threatening our lives the way he was driving. I pulled off the side street and just took off and just tried to, to sidestep it. But there was a time in my life because I was, I had vain glory. I was empty of glory, empty of significance. You know, I would have tried to probably, I would have taken the guy on. I would have tried to run him off the road. Praise God in Jesus' name. Take that. And uh, I've done that a few times. Not Well, I actually, I won't get into it anyway. But, uh, and, but there was times in my life because I was just in the same condition as this guy. But because I felt, I knew that, hey, I don't have anything to prove here. In fact, I need to be very careful. I've got to protect my wife. And this is a very volatile situation. We just avoided it completely. And I don't need to prove anything to this guy. And that's the, the tendency, though. And you, so you can see this in, in people's lives. We have to kind of prove ourselves. Why would someone need to prove themselves? Why would someone need to be tough guy? And it's because they are empty of glory. We promote ourselves because we are empty of glory. That's, what, that's where we get that, that vain glory. So those two words, rivalry, promoting ourselves, conceit, Vain glory, empty of glory. Um, and it's also why, let me also add to that, it's kind of interesting. I think that we can see this in a bigger sense. You read history and you will see nations have always acted just like street gangs. You slight them a little and they want to go to war. I mean, we've got the current situation here, even with North Korea. And Iran is, is a perfect example of that. That they have to prove themselves to the world. And it's because they're empty, empty of glory. So let me give you another couple of fill-in-the-blanks here. Here's uh, the next one. So the cause of our conflict is pride. Pride is a desire to promote ourselves, which can come in the form, we'll talk about this in a little bit, boasting in self-pity because we are empty of glory. We're empty of weight, significance, and importance. Here's the next fill-in-the-blank. 
And, and this is why we are empty. We are vain glory. We're empty of glory. It's because we were created to stand in the very presence of God and receive His favor. But because we turned away from God, our spiritual alienation has left us empty. This is psychological alienation. So I have this psychological alienation, this this emptiness inside in direct proportion to how I have dissed God and pushed away from God because I am not coming before the face of the living God through prayer, through Bible study, through small group involvement, and having my heart filled up with His favor for me. Because I don't do that, I'm running on empty, and so I have to promote myself because of that emptiness. But we were created. We were created. Now think about this. We were created to stand before the very face of the living God, the creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth, the God of the galaxies, and have his favor, his his love. Imagine this morning, you're standing before the living God, and he's telling you, he's looking you in the eyes, and he's saying, I love you. I love you. Well, that's what the Bible's about. That's what the cross is all about. That is so significant. That is so important. That's what fills up our lives in time of difficulty, in time of need. When we, when we take hits in life, when our life is being threatened, when we're being tempted in one way or another, what we need to hear more than anything is the love of God and how much He loves us and begin to see how big He is. He's bigger than whatever we're facing no matter what we're going through. But because we don't often go to the cross, we don't go to His Word, we don't spend time with others, we tend to run on empty. And then we, we begin to promote ourselves because of this vain glory, this empty of glory, this, this lack of significance and security that we so desperately need. St. Augustine, in his book, Confessions, he says, our hearts will forever be restless until we find our rest in God. And so regularly we need to find our rest in Him. We need to get that sense of completeness in Him and that contentment that can only can be found in Him. So next point on your notes, a couple fill in the blanks. I mean, it's going to take a little time to walk through this particular one because we're going to have to unpack this a little bit so we can identify it within our own lives. Our psychological alienation is characterized by, here's the first one, is perfectionism. In fact, let me give them all to you. Perfectionism, criticism, defensiveness, and self-absorption. You can go ahead and fill in the blanks here. Let me kind of walk you through this. So how do I def- define and how, do I, how am I able to identify if I'm uh, a little bit low? I'm running empty. First of all, perfectionism. You might not think that this applies to you. I'm a perfectionist. I tend to struggle with perfectionism. How many perfectionists do we have in the house? Okay. And, and, it, and it could be that in a general way you're a perfectionist or it could be a specific way. You might be a perfectionist in a, in a specific way in your life. You're cool with everything else kind of, you know, being whatever it is in your life, but there's a specific area of your life you're just driven to, to perform way beyond what you know that you need to perform. You're never satisfied in that particular area of your life. And it's probably because that's a particular area of your life that you're telling you, yourself that if I have this, if I do this, if I perform in this certain way, I have meaning, I have purpose, my life will be special, my life will be important. So you're trying to draw 
your sense of significance and security from that particular thing, whatever it is, whatever your performance might be. And the reason why you do that, now think about this, obsessive-compulsive disorder. We're all a, a bit obsessive-compulsive. Obsession just means that we, it captivates our thoughts. So that's obsessive. We become obsessive. We think about it. We're constantly thinking about it. It could be a person that's just concerned about this time of the year getting germs. So we're thinking about, oh, that person's sneezing in their hand. I don't want to shake that person's hand. Or, or you know, it could be any number of things. You know, I've got to keep washing my hands until they're bloody. Or any number of things that we do. But that obsessiveness, we think about it. Compulsiveness, we wash our hands relentlessly. And so we do it to an extreme. And it becomes a disorder because it's so out of normal. It's abnormal. And so we, we tend to do that, that perfectionism. Perfectionism, nothing wrong with pursuing excellence in art or music or business or education or athleticism because you love the field. For instance, you love doing music and love to listen to people perform their original stuff. You love the skill and the creativity of it. But if you have joy-filled competitive, competitiveness, then you will be almost as happy if your friend writes great songs and succeeds as if you do. Does that make sense? Because you, you ultimately know you don't compare yourself with others. You compare your accomplishments with your own personal capabilities. You see, we get into this, this competitiveness. We compare ourselves with others, which is crazy for us to do that. And then it drives us. And then we're, we're, we have ill will towards others who seem to succeed in a very area that we want to succeed in. It's because we're doing that area for the wrong reason. See, this is excellence motivated by love when we can rejoice in the success of others within a field of expertise that we, we love, we enjoy. That would be excellence motivated by love versus perfectionism motivated by fear or pride in an effort to fill up our emptiness. Perfectionism is driven by an inner vacuum. It is a discontentment with your life, always needing to succeed, always unhappy, perpetually dissatisfied with performance, always restless. And like I said, it can be general or specific to a field of achievement. Humility is being content with the level of talent, opportunity, and circumstances that God has given you and the fact that you're not perfect but can strive for excellence ultimately for God's glory. So it's not an obsessive-compulsive disorder kind of a thing that you're driven by. So if you find yourself doing that in any area of your life, it's, just, it's showing you that you, your sense of identity is too attached to that. You're telling yourself some lies. You've exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and you are worshiping and serving a created thing more than the Creator, Romans 1.25. That's perfectionism. And then criticism. Criticism. Sometimes you use sarcasm to get your point across or just for humor. And that's, that's cool. We can do that. There's a lot of sarcastic humor in our society today. But at some point when we cross the line and start treating others with contempt, sneering, jeering, ridiculing, and putting people down, to make ourselves feel bigger and better than others, then it becomes rivalry and conceit causing conflict. One of my biggest problems is that because I'm so driven as it relates to church life and driven in an unhealthy way out of fear and pride, trying to get my identity in this, sometimes I can be hypercritical about other churches rather than to be discerning. And certainly we need to be discerning, but I, it can move into that category that if I, I can shove them down and criticize them, it lifts me up and makes me feel better. And we all tend to do that. If you find yourself being critical about a certain group of people, and typically 
You might not, if, you might not be critical about everybody, and if you are, we'll pray for you here at the end of the service. But, uh, and some people are. Some people are just criti- critical about everything. And that's a major problem. That's a major issue. You're just sarcastic and cynical, and you've got a lot of bitterness deep in your heart. But what you'll notice is that you're typically critical about people in an area of achievement that you hold dear to your own heart. It's, some, it's an area where you want to succeed. And so you're going to typically be critical. For instance, lawyers will be critical of other lawyers. Teachers will be critical of other teachers, and, and particularly if it's an area where you get your sense of identity and security from. But so you look at this perfectionism. Now that I mentioned perfectionism, I bet everyone here probably has some obsessive-compulsive areas of their life that there's this perfectionistic, trying to get identity from that, rather than just chilling, you know, and having relaxing in life and letting some things go because it's okay. And then some of us, I think, we, if we really listen to what we criticize, how we criticize others, let me continue on with that. So humility means, as it relates to criticism, means treating others, whether greater or lesser, in your field of achievement or those who are opposed to you with courtesy, grace, and friendliness. So can you, how do you treat other people in your same field of achievement or whatever that might be? And then there's defensiveness. Ooh, this is a good one. This is this person who's unteachable, can't take advice or correction, responds negatively. So let me ask you this. When someone wants to point something out in your life, how do you respond? There's typically a couple different responses that are wrong responses. One is that we, we tend to blow up. I used to do that. I just blow up. You don't know what you're talking about. It's, it's a wall. It's a defensive wall to push people back. So you either blow up or you have a meltdown. When someone criticizes you, just like, oh, you fall apart. You walk away and you have the brain debates about that. You can't admit feelings, faults, or failures. Everything is black or white, can't handle ambiguity in your life. You know what ambiguity is? There's gray areas. And there's areas where sometimes you might feel the conviction not to do, and I might be okay with it. It's called areas of liberty. Those would be the non-essentials of our life. They don't fit into the category of the essentials of our Christian faith. But sometimes people, people have to have this sense of right and wrong, and this black and white, and they can't handle the ambiguity. They always have to be right, always have to have the last word. That would be part of that defensiveness. And typically these people are moralist or legalist who base their identity on their virtuous, having it all together kind of behavior. I mean, I can't, I can't admit flaws. I mean, my goodness, my identity is wrapped up in having it all together, looking good. I have a works righteousness kind of uh, uh, relationship with God rather than a faith righteousness. It's, that's being a, a, a religious person, in fact. And in fact, a defensive person, repentance is always under duress. That is, it's either under pressure or forced. It's not something that they do in a, in a delightful way, in a, in a happy way, when they recognize, man, I'm on the wrong track. I need to get over here. Please forgive me. I am so wrong. You see, that defensiveness shows us that we've got some issues here. We've got, we're, we're trying to promote ourselves and we have vain glory, empty of glory inside of us. Here's the last one, self-absorption. Okay, have I hit everybody for the most part so far? I hope so. If I haven't, I'll get you on this one, okay? Here we go. Self-absorption. Self-absorption. It is a preoccupation with me, myself, and I. How do I look? How am I feeling? How are people treating me? What do people think about me? I mean, it's just this preoccupation. When you walk into a party, walk into a room, when you walked in here today, were you looking to say, how do I, you know, what, 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 what do I look? What do I think? What do I, ah... Uh, 
self-consciousness. Listen, listen to me. You'd worry less about what others thought of you if you realized how little they did. Okay? I mean, you, you just wouldn't be so preoccupied with that. And that's one of the reasons why people struggle sometimes coming up here and even, you know, public speaking is because it, you can get into a mode of just being so preoccupied with yourself. And typically, that's when I crash and burn. I've got to so focus on what God is wanting to speak to me at, at this time and be so focused on Him. And otherwise, I just get so out of kilter and get all messed up and I start thinking about myself and, oh, they didn't laugh or they didn't do this and that or whatever. And it's just, it's vain glory. It's trying to promote myself because I'm empty and I need to go back to the cross and remind myself of who I am and what Christ has for me and who He is for me. And so, self-absorption, it, it can come in the form of superiority uh, in boasting in my success. And when people boast of their success, I deserve admiration because I've achieved so much. So we kind of promote ourselves so it can come in this form of superiority, kind of this condescending attitude towards others. Or it can also come in the form of this self-absorption in inferiority, in the form of self-pity, self-pity in my suffering. I deserve admiration because I have sacrificed so much, because I'm suffering so much. So it can actually be either one of those. If you're always, also, if you're always down on yourself, always beating yourself up, or if you're afraid of compliments or any kind of attention, if you are bombarded with brain debates after interacting with others, you know, and those brain debates are really about your performance or how, what I said or what I did or how they responded, their treatment of you, it's because you are painfully self-aware, self-absorbed with thinking about yourself. And it's because you're empty. You're empty of what God wants to fill you up with, and that's himself. And so, what's the cure? That's the cause. The cause, is, the cause of our conflict is pride. You can kind of see how that works out in our life. We promote ourselves because we're empty. We haven't stood before the face of God and received his value of us, and it's manifested through perfectionism, criticism, defensiveness, and self-absorption. The cure to our conflict is humility. It's humility. Let me walk you through these verses. I put on there three through four, but let me walk you through two through four real quick. Look back at verse two. It says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in the same, in, in, being in full accord with one mind. He's talking about this harmony, community, unity. And then he says, and then he tells us why we don't have that harmony, unity, doing nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, there's the answer, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look to others as having more weight, significance, importance than yourself. And then he goes on in verse 4, and it kind of explains that to us. He says, let each of you Look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. So he's not saying just to ignore your interest completely. But don't just look at your own interest. Notice where, the, where, you're, where you're supposed to be looking. Don't just look at yourself. Don't be preoccupied with self. But look to the needs of others. Focus on others. It's really interesting. So let's walk through that. What does that mean? Um... Let me give you the definition for humility for that word that's there. If you have it, and you can circle that in your Bible, it, just, it means a, a deep sense of one's smallness. You could just circle it right to the smallness, deep sense of one's smallness. The word origin is lowly in mind. C.J. Mahaney, from his book on humility, this is what he says. Humility 
is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. So it's really just an accurate view of yourself. And it's seeing yourself accurately as it relates to the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ gives us an accurate view of ourselves. And the first view that it gives us of ourselves is that you and I are more sinful than we ever dared to think. We were so sinful, Jesus had to die for us. But it also says to us, when we look at the cross, it tells us that that He loved us so much He wanted to die for us. I am more loved than I ever dared to dream. That the God, the Creator of the universe, would die, that He would bleed and die, that He was crushed for you and I. So that's an accurate view of ourselves. As I stated, C.J. Mahaney says, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Now this is what's interesting about this particular word is that outside of the New Testament, the Greek word was always derogatory because it was an attitude of a slave. So outside of the Bible, it was always a derogatory uh, word, humility. And this word or version of it is used 270 times in the Bible and is used almost always positively when it's used in the Bible. So humility is not a, a vice, it's a virtue. It's a virtue that God wants us to live and live out in our lives. It is, as some would say, it is a gentleness, a modesty, and a friendliness. But it is, it's even more than that. It's an accurate view of ourselves. Now, here's your next fill in the blank. And there's a lot of verses there you can look up on your own, but you're going to see the significance of, of humility. I can lack almost anything, but if I lack humility, it will destroy me for all eternity because it is what connects me to God. I can lack almost anything, but if I lack humility, it will destroy me for all eternity because it is what connects me to God. A couple verses here. James 4, 6. You guys probably know that verse. God does what? He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Here's another verse, uh, Psalm 147, 6. It says, God lifts up the humble, but He casts the wicked to the ground. Did you notice the contrast? If you have pride, the Bible would classify you as being wicked. And I don't think anybody got up this morning and said, hey, I'm going to take you on, God. I'm going to fight with you. And if we have, if we have a proud heart, th- th- that's what we're doing. This pride is this this arrogant, this uh, independent attitude towards God. When you look back to the Garden of Eden in uh, Genesis 3, that's what takes hold of their life. It it is the essence of sin. The reason why we sin, we do that which is contrary to what the book says, what the Bible teaches, what Christ wants us to out of His love and wisdom. He has given us these directives. And the reason why we would take an alternate path is because of pride. Pride. It starts with unbelief, and we begin to question that God really has our best interest at heart. And then it moves to pride. We think that we can find success and happiness on our own, and then it leads to idolatry. It always works that way. It starts with unbelief. I doubt God's love for me. I take life into my own hands. I begin to give my heart to something other than God as, as, as the center of my life. And the Bible says God opposes the proud but He gives grace to the humble. 
And a humble heart is just one that just is hungry for God. You recognize you are desperate for God. I need you, God. I long for you. I will pursue you. That's, that's humility. And God pours grace into those that open their heart to him and say yes to him and believe in him and submit to him and make him the center of their lives, the love of their lives, the hope of their lives, the joy of their lives. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So the cure to our conflict is humility. Here's the next point. Here's what true humility is. True humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. It is a blessed self-forgetfulness. See, back at, once again, humility has to do with what you are looking at or focused on. Note, in, note the text, verse 4, it says, Look not only to your own interest, but also the interest of others. So it's what are you preoccupied with? What are you focused on? And, uh, I mean, if you came up to me this morning and said, uh, Hey, uh, Pastor Ray, how are you doing? Or you call me Ray. So, hey, Ray, how are you doing? And I said, uh, my shoulder and back, they're doing really good. You go, that's weird. Unless you knew that I was having problems with my shoulder and back, but you didn't ask specific to that. But I don't even think about my shoulder and back, but lately my shoulder and back have been killing me, okay? And I've had lower back pain. And uh, I, about a month or so ago, I had to go get a cortisone shot on my shoulder but when they're working good, they don't draw attention to themselves. You know, that's why we don't talk about it. When you say, hey, how are you doing? Hey, my shoulder's doing really good. My back is doing real good too. No, body parts don't draw attention to themselves when they're functioning appropriately. So it is with our ego. When our ego is where it needs to be, we're not going to draw attention to ourselves. We're not going to be preoccupied with ourselves. We're not going to be promoting ourselves because, because there's no... Uh, there's no conflict going on inside of us and with our, with our ego. So true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. It is a blessed self-forgetfulness. So how do we make this change from, from pride to humility? It's always, it's always here, Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and now we get to the most amazing section of Scripture in our text here this morning in, in the book of Philippians and, and even in the Bible. It's an amazing text. So it's through Jesus Christ. We make the change from pride to humility through Christ. This is an amazingly famous passage in the Bible about the incarnation of Christ. It is a magnificent, sweeping hymn. It's a song of praise to the deity of Jesus Christ, to the greatness of who he is and what he's done. Now, here's my question for you. Why would Paul do this in the middle of this very practical teaching on conflict and humility in our lives and how we interact with one another? Why would he put this right here? Why would he just go on and begin to give us steps on how we can begin to have the harmony and unity and community that we all so desperately want in our lives? I mean, he just all of a sudden, he goes into this sweeping theological discourse. And many would say this is a song. Why would he do that? Well, here's, here's your point. Here's why he does this. 
he does it for. In fact, let me just read a, a, a couple lines here from it. You'll notice he says, let, he says in uh, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. So it just it goes through this unbelievable thing that we see happen through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Came taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He emphasizes that. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here, let me give you the fill in the blank here. Here's your point. Here's what you need to know. Humility is not found by direct pursuit, but is the byproduct of seeing and being seized by the glory of Jesus Christ. See, if we're going to we're going to work on humility here this morning, and I gave you six easy steps to be a humble person. When you hit the sixth step and you got it all down, you're no longer humble, okay? Because you can't pursue humility. You can't say, hey, look at this. I hit all six of the steps. Look at me. I'm a really humble person. You can't do that. You can't pursue humility directly. You can't do it. It is a byproduct of something. It is a byproduct of seeing and being seized by the beauty and the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's something that begins to take place in our hearts. Listen to what uh, John Piper says. You've heard me talk about this in the past. I've even alluded to it a couple weeks ago. He says, no one would go to the Grand Canyon to increase their sense of self-esteem, would they? doesn't make any sense, does it? He goes on, he says, no one stands on the edge of the Alps or the Rockies in order to go there to feel better about themselves. Do you know why they go there? Because you were created to be satisfied with splendor, not self. You were created to be infinitely, eternally, fully, joyfully satisfied in a grand splendor, not a great self. Lay down your quest for the applause of men, the approval of men, and begin to get on the quest for the one thing that will satisfy your soul, the splendor of Jesus Christ and all that God is for you in Him. It's amazing. And that's why Paul would do this. Right in the middle of this text, that we could begin to see the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnation. In fact, the glory of Jesus Christ, as some have said is in, in these verses, is a symphony in three movements. In verses 6 through 7, you have the incarnation. God becoming flesh. In verse 8, you have the atonement. The word atonement basically means at one month. That there was this Grand Canyon-sized chasm, actually bigger than that. It was an eternal-sized chasm that separated us from this eternal holy God. And through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, He built the bridge across that chasm so that we could be in one. We could be one with the Savior, with the King, with, with God of the universe. So you've got incarnation, you've got atonement, and then you've got exaltation, verses 9 through 11. If somehow you could get a glimpse of heaven right now, if you could get a glimpse of heaven and you could see Jesus and you could see his beauty, 
and his glory and his splendor and his brightness and his majesty, it would be overwhelming. It would knock you down. You would be blown away. There's a lot of illustrations of this throughout Scripture. Stephen, the first martyr, I talked about it last weekend, Acts 7. How was Stephen able to endure the the persecution of the masses? They were throwing rocks at him. He was stoned to death. How was he able to endure that? Because he looked to the heavens and he saw, he got a glimpse into the heavens. If you want the strength, the stamina to get through whatever you're going through, you need to see the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to see the one who would rather die than to be without you for all eternity. The one who gave his life for you. When you begin to understand that and the implications of that, you begin to say, hey, if God is for me, who can be against me? No matter what I face, I have what I need to face all the obstacles of my life. You see that also with Peter, James, and John. Remember the story? We studied it back when we went through the Gospel of Mark. The Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, they were blown away at the beauty and the glory and the splendor of Jesus. And and we've seen, even in creation, even earthly things that are glorious, when you see them, its beauty evokes adoration from you. Nancy and I, this last, uh, about a month or so ago, we had a chance to go to Portland, Oregon. And just outside of Portland, there's uh, Multnomah Falls. And it is breathtaking. Anybody ever go to Multnomah Falls? Unbelievable, isn't it? And then we even took some hikes way back up into the forest. We had to take a few little mountain trails through, uh, through uh, tunnels and went back up in there. It is breathtaking. The Bible tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Anybody up early enough to see the sun, uh, sunrise this morning? Beautiful. A reminder of God's faithfulness. Once again, declaring the glory of God. That is a dim glimpse of the beauty and the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and I get glimpses of, of Jesus from time to time. My prayer regularly and consistently here at Desert Breeze is that God give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might see you, so that we can adore you, so that we can fall more and more in love with you. And that's what he's saying. That's ultimately what, what resolves the conflict in our lives. We have conflict this way, horizontally, socially, is because we've got a whole lot of conflict going on inside of us. We've got conflict going on inside of us because we haven't seen the glory of Jesus, who He is, what He's done for us. We're not living in the reality of those things. And then Jesus Christ came to this earth, as, it, as, he, as the Apostle Paul describes here, He came to this earth without this beauty and glory. Isaiah 53 says that He had no beauty that we should desire Him. And so this text here tells us he emptied himself of his glory, beauty, of that which evokes honor. And so he came and he was lonely. This is the God of all creation. And he was poor and eventually he was beaten and tortured and he was killed. Here's your next point on your notes. Jesus Christ, second person of the triune God, emptied himself not of his deity. It's important to keep that in mind. We've got to stay theologically accurate here, but of his glory so that you might be full, so that we might have this weight, significance, importance. Verse 7, take a look at verse 7. It says, but made himself nothing, 
Kenosis is the Greek word. It means to empty, to make empty, but made himself nothing. Theologians have asked, emptied himself of what? What did he empty himself of? He did not empty himself of his divine nature, of his deity, but he assumed a nature, a human nature. But more than that, he became a servant. And more than that, he became a servant who died. How many have ever watched that? I think it's on Sunday night. I only watched it a couple of times. It was really kind of moving. But it was a TV show, Sunday nights. It was called Undercover Boss. Anybody? You guys ever see that? Isn't that an interesting show? Undercover boss. These CEOs of these big corporations become one of the people, one of the grunts, one of the everyday kind of persons. And they just kind of infiltrate the group and kind of find out just how difficult it is. But, I mean, obviously the, the show doesn't go to the extent where this guy actually sacrifices his life for everybody because he, you know, he goes back and he's still the boss and they sometimes will fire a few folks and sometimes they'll bless others and, and reward others. But when you really think about what Jesus did, he didn't have to do this. And listen to me. Everybody look up here just for a minute. You can study it for yourself. Some of you are here and you don't believe the whole Christian thing. I understand. I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. And I'm I'm glad that you're even maybe even considering it, kicking the tires, examining the claims of Christ. But I'll tell you what, you roll up your sleeves. Don't commit intellectual suicide. And you show me one other major cult or religion of our world today that even comes close to Christianity that says that we, that we have a God who got involved, got His hands dirty, got involved in our lives, became like one of us, but more than that, became a servant and died for us. There's no other religious group that even dares to come close to that. That's what totally amazes me about Christianity. Because, see, every other religious group is a finite man trying to relate to an infinite God through a code of ethics, rules and regulations, trying hard enough. And we can never try hard enough. We can never do enough. But Christianity is about an infinite God in His love and sacrifice related to us finite people, limited people, with His blood shed on Calvary. It's amazing. And that's why... That's why uh, the cure to conflict is humility, a humility that comes as a result of seeing all that Jesus Christ has done for you and I. He didn't give up being God, but he started being a servant. And this is really the, what is known as the hypostatic union. <laughs> Anybody ever heard that before? How many are familiar with hypostatic union? Okay, there's like three of us in here. Hypostatic union... It means this. It's one of the three big mysteries. One would be the Trinity. God is one in essence, three in person. The other one would be how this works out, man's responsibility, God's sovereignty. The third one is this hypostatic union, and it's where where Jesus let go of his glory, but he didn't let go of his deity, and he embraced full humanity, and he is 100% God, 100% man. It's a mind-blower. And yet that's what the Bible's telling us. That's what it teaches us. He didn't shed his divine nature, but he assumed a human nature. But more than that, he became a servant. And more than that, he became a servant who died. You and I, let's face it, we regularly are desperate to fill ourselves with glory, but we end up empty. But Jesus Christ emptied himself of glory so that you and I would be full. 
Jesus Christ became small so that we could become big in the eyes of God. Jesus Christ knew no sin, knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus Christ was treated as we deserve so that when we believe in Him, we are treated as He deserves. And Jesus looks at us this morning through this text and says, to me and in me, you are more valuable than all of the wealth in this world. And to the degree that sinks deep into your heart and fills your heart up, not just knowing, knowing the reality of that intellectually, but existentially, that gets a hold of you, that gets a grip on your heart. It changes the way you begin to respond to those within your circle of touch and influence. How do we live that out in our everyday life? Here it is, the consistent life of humility. It's through communion. We go all the way back to verse 1. It's an interesting the way that he, he builds his case here and, and he helps us to understand how we can have humility in our lives. But he starts in verse 1. Let me reread it. So if there is any encouragement in Christ. By the way, the word if, you can circle that word there and on the side put since because that's literally what he means. Since you have these things, He's kind of speaking rhetorically. It's obvious. He's saying, you have these things. Live in the reality of these things. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any uh, participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he's saying, out of this, as you nurture your heart, as you put your heart like a bucket under the fountain of God's love regularly, then make my joy complete by being like mine. He talks about this harmony and he says, make sure you deal with, with this empty glory and this promoting of yourself, this stuff. And the only way you can do that is with humility. Oh, by the way, humility comes as a result of seeing and being seized by the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you a couple more fill-in-the-blanks here. Because I have fullness in Jesus Christ through his encouragement, comfort from love, participation in the spirit, affection, and sympathy, I can empty myself, which is humility, for others' fullness in Christ. I can empty myself. See, you guys tracking with me here? Does that make sense? So to the degree I fill my heart up with what God thinks of me is to the degree that I can begin to respond to others. I can empty my life out for others for their sake. The only reason why I respond, I mean, I, I mean, I wrote down a list. Oh, well, you didn't get the raise. You didn't get the promotion. You didn't get the job. The king of the universe died for you. Oh, well, you're rejected. You got snubbed by a coworker. You're being ridiculed because of your faith. The God of the galaxies is madly in love with you. Can you see the contrast there? Oh, well, you didn't get the date. You didn't get the scholarship. Your success wasn't what you hoped it would be. The Lord Jesus Christ, the God of creation, came to this earth to reveal to us the Father's heart. He died on the cross so that we could be united with the Father, and out of that we can respond to life accordingly. Here's our last one. Here's the gospel trajectory. The way up is down. The way to be truly rich is to give. The way to rule is to serve. The way to be infinitely happy is to seek the happiness of others. The greatest form of glory is to give away your glory for someone else. 
And when you see what He did for you, that will fill you up and you will not have to think about yourself again. In fact, that's why we talk about these five G's. You will be a genuine Christian. You'll give your life to Him. You'll make a commitment to Christ and to a church family. You'll make that public through water baptism. You'll become a growing Christian. You'll be committed to the disciplines necessary to keep your heart filled up with, the, with who God is and what He's done for you through the spiritual disciplines, Bible study, prayer, small group participation. And then if you're genuine, you'll be growing. If you're growing, you'll be giving. You'll look for places where you can get involved here at Desert Breeze. You'll begin to give faithfully of your resources and your finances because your life is so filled up with God. And then the fourth G is you'll begin to look for ways that you can begin to share your faith with others. And as you live that out, as you walk with God, live His Word, contribute to His work, make an impact in this world, you will be giving glory to God because God is most glorified in us as we are most satisfied in Him. Let me end with a story and our band's going to come up and lead us in one last song. And I found this story, I found it really a, a great story in Max Licato's book, The Eye of the Storm. Listen to what he says, February 15, 1921, New York City, the operating room of the Kane Summit Hospital. The doctor is performing an appendectomy. In many ways, the events leading to the surgery are uneventful. The patient has complained of several abdominal, of severe abdominal pain. The diagnosis is clear, an inflamed appendix. Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane is performing the surgery. In his distinguished 37-year medical career, he has performed nearly 4,000 appendectomies. So this surgery will be uneventful in all ways except for two the first novelty of this operation, the use of local anesthesia in major surgery. Dr. Kane is a crusader against the hazards of general anesthesia. He contends that a local application is far safer. Many of his colleagues agree with him in principle, but in order for them to agree in practice, they will have to see the theory applied. Dr. Kane searches for a volunteer, a patient who is willing to undergo surgery while under local anesthesia. A volunteer is not easily found. Many are squeamish at the thought of being awake during their own surgery. Others are fearful that the anesthesia might wear off too soon. Eventually, however, Dr. Kane finds a candidate. On Tuesday morning, February the 15th, the historic operation occurs the patient is prepped and willed into the operating room. A local anesthetic is applied, as he has done thousands of times. Dr. Kane dissects the superficial tissues, locates the appendix. He skillfully excises it and concludes the surgery. During the procedure, the patient complains of only minor discomfort. The volunteer is taken into post-op, then placed in a hospital ward. He recovers quickly and is dismissed two days later. Dr. Kane had proven his theory. Thanks to the willingness of a brave volunteer, Kane demonstrated that local anesthesia was a viable and even preferable alternative. But I said there were two facts that made the surgery unique. I've told you the first, the use of local anesthesia. The second is the patient. The courageous candidate for surgery by Dr. Kane was Dr. Kane. To prove his point, Dr. Kane operated on himself. A wise move, the doctor became a patient in order to convince the patients to trust the doctor. I've shared this story with several health professionals. They each gave me the same response. Furrowed brow, suspicious grin, and dubious words. That's hard to believe. 
Perhaps it is. But the story of the doctor who became his own patient is mild compared to the story of God who became human. But Jesus did so that you and I would believe that the healer knows our hurts. He voluntarily became one of us. He placed himself in our position. He suffered our pains and felt our fears. Rejection, he felt it. Temptation, he knew it. Loneliness, he experienced it. Death, he tasted it. And stress, he could write a best-selling book about it. Why did he do it? One reason. So that when you hurt, you will go to Him, your Father, your physician, and let Him heal you. 